If you have your Bibles, you can take them and open them to Matthew chapter 13. If you don't have a Bible, we have uh, Bibles that are under the seats that uh, are yours to use or to keep if you don't have a Bible. And uh, the text that we're going to be looking at is, uh, begins on page 818 uh, if you are um, uh, needing some help to make your way through uh, the Bible. There are only a few portions in Scripture that present in a very concise picture the biblical or the Christian worldview. By that I mean when we think about a worldview, that is um, how we understand the world in which we live. And this text that we're going to look at today is one of those such passages of Scripture. And it seems to be a very appropriate way to end a long time that we have had as a congregation in the book of Revelation and to end a short few weeks that we have had dealing with the wiles or the temptations of Satan. If you're just visiting or just kind of popped in today, we're in the sixth and the last in a a short little series on um, the fact that we ought not to be ignorant of the schemes of the devil or the wiles of Satan. And that came out of the book of Revelation. And so it helps now to just kind of stand back and to get a worldview sort of perspective on uh, life and how these things fit into the bigger picture. So I want to read uh, just uh, the first part of the parable and make some comments about it and then work my way through it um, with us together this morning. Uh, this is the Word of God. It is God's gift to us. It is uh, true wisdom. And so starting at verse 24, I just want to read the, uh, to verse 30 and just stop there and we'll pray and then make a few comments. He put another parable before them, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while his men were sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and went away. So when the plants came up and bore grain, then the weeds appeared also. And the servants of the master of the house came and said to him, Master, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have weeds? And he said to them, An enemy has done this. So the servant said to him, Then do you want us to go out and gather them? But he said, No, lest in gathering the weeds you root up the wheat along with them. Let both grow together until the harvest. And at the harvest time I will tell the reapers, Gather the weeds first and bind them in bundles to be burned but gather the wheat into my barn. Father, we are before your word now, a true word, the only sure truth that we really have to base our life in. It's a true word because you have given it to us. You are the creator of this world and everything in it. And in your graciousness to us, you have revealed yourself to us in your word, through your word, to help us understand something about you, to help us understand something about ourselves, to help us understand something about the world in which we live. Father, we need help in understanding this book, not because it's unclear, but because our minds are fuzzy. And so I pray that you will help us to think clearly this morning. I pray that you will make this book live. Live in our hearts, I pray, 
in Jesus' name. Amen. So the parable is about a field. It's one of seven parables of the kingdom of heaven that are found in Matthew chapter 13. Parables about the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God. Or in short form, just the kingdom. It's a kingdom that is ruled by God. It is God's dominion. And in fact, all of chapter 13 is a single sermon that has been put together. In fact, the book of Matthew has five sermons in it. This is the third sermon that is there, and all of chapter 13 is one of these sermons to a great crowd of people. And so Jesus is telling them about the kingdom of heaven, the God's reign and rule on the earth, and he gives us this introduction to it by simply saying the kingdom of heaven may be compared to. So we're trying to understand, well, what does the kingdom of heaven look like? What does God's reign look like in the world in which we live? And so he says it might be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field. And while his men were sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weeds among them, among the wheat, and went away. So this is a picture that he is describing now to help us understand something of the kingdom of heaven. It was a common reality in Jesus' days. It was an agricultural society, and many uh, families had fields in which they sowed uh, various things. This one was a wheat field. The man owned a field. He had sowed good seed in it, not mediocre seed, not, not secondary kind of seed, but it was seed likely from the previous year that he had um, winnowed the chaff out of it. He had probably washed it. He had stored it carefully and safely. It was good seed. It was free from all kinds of defects. And so he went out and he had his sermon or his, his servant scatter this seed in his field. After working hard, his servants went to bed as they would be apt to do. It wasn't that they were lazy. It's that their work was done. Their job had been completed. They had sowed this good seed in the field. While the servants slept at night, Jesus tells how his enemy came in and he overseeded the field with false wheat or darnel. The point here is to describe the stealth and the maliciousness of the enemy as they snuck in during the night while everyone was sleeping and they intentionally sowed this bad seed into the field. It's not unlike we have today. Uh, malicious viruses that are inserted into our computer programs that when we open up a program it sends our computer crazy. It's a malicious act. It's an evil act with intention that is meant to destroy. So his enemy sowed darnel. Uh, darnel is a, is a, a, a grain or a, a seed which is botanically close to wheat and it's very difficult to distinguish from it when the plants are young. He sowed this among the wheat. He overseeded the field. It's a strong word that indicates that he didn't just do a portion of the field. He didn't just do a corner of the field, but he, he had his, his servants overseed the whole field that this man owned. It's a great way to ruin a crop. The weeds would take up valuable nutrients and water from the soil. Or from the soil and they would complete, compete with the wheat for all of those nutrients and they would have the potential of diminishing the return of the wheat. You would say, well, did they do this very often? Was this a common thing in the days of Jesus? Well, yes, it was common enough so that the Roman government had a law against it which prescribed a certain kind of punishment if you did that kind of thing. And so this was a very real experience that people 
uh, suffered from time to time. This spiteful attack would have remained hidden for a time until the plants sprouted and they began to produce heads on them. Then the weeds became obvious and the plot was obvious. The, there weren't just a few darnels, there weren't just a few weeds in the field. In fact, the whole field was full of them. It wasn't the landowner's mistake. He had sown the field with good seed. So why were there so many weeds? Well, he says an enemy did this. He told them that. He, I appreciate the response of his servants because right away what they want to do, it demonstrates their hard work again. He said, you want us to go in and gather them all up? And the response was, well, no, don't do this. By, by that time, by the time there was a evidence that there was weeds sown among the wheat, their roots would have entangled themselves and would have grown in amongst themselves. And even though one had been very careful, they still would have pulled up some of the wheat at the same time that they were pulling out some of the weeds. And so the farmer, a wise farmer, said, no, let them continue to grow until the harvest time. And at that time, I will send the reapers out into the field, and they will bundle up all of the weeds, and we will throw them into the fire. But the wheat, the good stuff that is left, will be stored up in the barn. That's the parable. That's the illustration that describes what the kingdom of heaven is like. It's understandable. It's emotionally charged. But we wonder what it means. We only have to look a few verses ahead, and we find there in verse 36 that then he left the crowds. We need to stop there for a moment because at the very beginning of chapter 13, we read there that great crowds gathered about him so that he got in a boat and he went uh, and he sat down and the whole crowd stood on the beach. So there was this incredible crowd of people that had gathered around to hear Jesus speak and he was speaking them in parables. But he's dismissed the crowds and he's gone into a house, possibly Peter's house, and the disciples ask him to explain the parable of the weeds in the fields to them. Now, I don't have time this morning to go through uh, um, uh, verses 10 to verses 17 to talk about why Jesus used parables. It tells us why he used parables. And in fact, he said to those who were his disciples, he would explain to them what he kept unexplained to the vast crowds. And so the disciples get him alone and they say, explain the parable of the weeds in the fields to us. And as he does, he draws out seven key points from the parable, which just explode in biblical truth to us. It's about an age. The field represents an age, and as we see, it represents the world. There's a beginning, there's a middle, and the end. There's a time when the seed is planted, then there's the time when the seed grows together, and then there's the time of the harvest. And Jesus will tell us that this is a, a metaphor or a picture of the world in which we live. At the end of the age, the false will be destroyed and the wheat will be harvested. It's important that we put this into a larger context, and I just want to take a couple moments before we dive into what Jesus actually says here. Because he talks about the end of the age twice in verse 39 and verse 30, or verse 40. He speaks of two ages. This is one of the, uh, the, the, the most foundational ways of understanding the world that we live in and the Bible. And all that is explained in the Bible takes place in one of two ages. And in fact, some of what Jesus, uh, we know as prophecy, is fulfilled in the age to come. Right now, we live in the first age. 
It's the age that started in the beginning of uh, Genesis when God created this world, and it will end when Jesus comes back and he judges the world. From there we go into the second age. There are only two ages that mankind populates. There is the age in which we live now, and there's the age in which to come. The age in which we live now has been described by Paul as the evil age. He says, Jesus Christ has given himself to deliver us from this present evil age. Another place, Paul says, you were dead in your sins and trespasses, which you previously walked according to this worldly age, according to the ruler of this age. So it's helpful for us to understand, this is worldview stuff, but the world in which we live now is an age which is characterized or described as an evil age. But there's another age to come in which humankind will inhabit. It says, Jesus said to them, the sons of this age marry and are given in marriage. But those who are considered worthy to, an age, to attain that age and to the resurrection from the dead neither marry nor are given in marriage. So there is an age to come and it is different from the present age in which we live. So we have a present evil age and we have an age to come which is a good age. There are many texts in the New Testament that describe these two ages that exhaust all of human history. I don't want to get into the theological um, uh, discussion that's behind this one text other than to help us see that it illustrates this two ages again. Matthew 12, 32. Whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven. But whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven either in this age or in the age to come. So there, Jesus clearly delineates between a present age and an age to come. In another place, Jesus says, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come, eternal life. Now this the word age is sometimes translated world. And so, for instance, we find that in Romans chapter 12, verse 2. Do not be conformed to this age. Remember, this is an evil age. And so we're not to be conformed to this age. Jesus came training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, self upright, and godly lives in this present age. We are not to be marked by the evil of this age. We are to be marked by living a godly life in this present age. So this teaching or this description of ages permeates the whole of the New Testament. And when you take these two ages together, they exhaust all of humankind or human history. There is not a period of history or human history before this present age, and there is not an age of human history between the two ages, and there is not another age of human history after the age to come. Only two ages. And this parable particularly describes the present age, but gives hints about the age to come. One final thing. The Bible tells us that the two ages are not um, clearly broken up. The, the, the age to come is already impacting the present age in which we live. So for instance, Hebrews chapter 6 describes those who have tasted of the things of the Lord. They have, um, they have tasted of the, uh, the powers of the age to come, and yet they have rejected them. So in this age, we can experience something of the age to come. 
They're not completely delineated from one another. Finally, what we know is that this present age is in its last days. That's what the book of Revelation is about, the last days of this present evil age. So this is what Jesus says then. He left the crowds and he went into the house and his disciples came to him and saying, explain to us the parable of the weeds of the fields, verse 37 of chapter 13. So he answered, the one who sows the good seed is the son of man. The field is the world. And the good seed is the sons of the kingdom. The weeds are the sons of the evil one. And the enemy who sowed them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the age, and the reapers are the angels. In those few verses, we have seven things that Jesus wants to communicate to help us understand this age, this world, to give us an understanding of a biblical worldview. The sower is the son of man. Son of man is Jesus. It's the most frequent self-identifying term that Jesus used of himself in all of his time here on earth. It both revealed and concealed his identity. But the particular focus of that phrase, Son of Man, was to drive attention to the humanity of God, the humanity of the Messiah. It was a way that God, through that title and Christ, identified with us as human beings. He had flesh and blood just like you and I have. And so it's a point of identification with us in our humanity. It's also, though, a way of saying that Jesus was the second Adam. There was the first Adam, which uh, we find in the book of Genesis, and there's the second Adam through which we have eternal life. The first Adam ushered in death. The second Adam, which is the human, uh, which is God in human flesh, ushered in life. But thirdly, it's a way of Jesus declaring that he is the promised Messiah. Because when he uses that phrase, son of man, he takes from Daniel chapter 7, verse 13, where the, it scribes, then the son of man will come. And it's important that we kind of grasp that because then Jesus, when he was using that phrase again and again, he was declaring himself to be the Messiah. And so there's a particular confrontation he had with a number of the Jews. And he said to them, which inflamed them, he said, from now on, the Son of Man shall be seated at the right hand of the power of God. To which the Jewish people replied to him, are you the Son of God? You see, they connected the Son of God with the Son of Man. They understood that the one who was the Son of Man was the one who would be the Messiah. And so Jesus used it as a messianic reference to himself. So the one who plants the seed is the Son of God, Jesus. And then he says very clearly, the field is the world. You can't, you can't miss that. It is, it is absolutely obvious and plain. The son of man who sows good seed, he sows it in the field, which is world. So Jesus is sowing good seed in this world. The world is his field. He is sovereign over it. This has been a point of confusion, and it needn't be amongst the church. There are those who want to say, well, the field is the church. It's not. If Jesus had wanted to say the field was the church, he would have said that. And then there's all kinds of misunderstanding. Then, well, is the church supposed to tolerate sinfulness? Well, there's a whole other part of the scripture which tells us that the church is to strive for purity. But this is not a parable about the church. It is a parable about the world in which we live in. And Jesus very clearly says the field is the world. We are meant to understand that Jesus is describing this world in which we live in. 
Why is it this way? Well, he rules over it, even though it's his, his world, and even though he rules over it, he has given significant authority to Satan in this present age, which what we have been talking about in the book of Revelation as we've been looking at the wiles of the evil one. All over this world, from its very beginning, there has been a mixture of good seed and bad seed, and we'll talk about what those two seeds are, but I think you already know them. There's been a mixture of these all over the world. God has those who are his. So you remember when, when um, John sees or hears the number 144,000 in Revelation 7, he turns around and what does he see? He sees a great multitude that nobody could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes and with palm branches in their hands, crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to, the, to, the, to, the, to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. See, his kingdom is throughout this world. It reaches every tongue, every nation, every tribe. And only when the gospel has reached to the farthest corners of the world, it says this gospel is to be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. When this gospel has reached every corner of this world, then the end will come. And so the field is the world. The good seed that is planted in it are the sons of the kingdom of God. This is so helpful for us to understand why the world is as it is and why we are in this world. Good seed are the children of God. Good seed are the children of the kingdom. And the Lord puts his children, the children of the kingdom, all over the world. And so if you are here today and you are a follower of Jesus Christ, God has planted you here. He has determined that he would plant you in this part of the world at this particular time in his field and you are here today because God wants you here you are not here by accident you are not here by chance but God has planted you here see what kind of love the father has given us that we should be called children of God and so we are that's the reason the world does not know us because it did know him did not know him Matthew Jesus says to uh, the, the disciples there, he says, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. And so all through the world are God's planting, which are his people. It's amazing, isn't it? Children of the kingdom. If you are such today, then Christ is your king. If you are such today, then Christ rules over you. If you are such today, then you and I are subjects of that amazing rule of Christ. And it's an amazing picture of the, of the church in the world. Why has God done it this way? Well, we looked at the book of Revelation, and sometimes people wondered, well, why isn't the church taken out of the world? Well, this parable helps us understand that God leaves the good seed amongst the evil seed until the very end when the judgment comes. And the book of Revelation describes how the children of God are in this world to the very end. And why do we face the wiles of Satan? Well, God has determined that good seed and evil seed will intermix until the final day when his judgment comes. So why? Why is it so? Well, there's a number of reasons. I think one, so that we might shine. That we might shine as lights in the midst of a dark world. Do you remember what Jesus prayed? And I don't think we think about this enough, but do you remember what Jesus prayed? He says, Father, I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. 
You see, God's intention all along has not been to isolate the people of God, not meant to call us out into monasteries, not meant to call us out into our own little Christian communities. God has always intended that we be in his field, which is the world. And not that we be sucked out of the world, but that we be kept from the evil one, which is why we've been talking about the wiles of Satan. We are told to be salt and light. We are to be a preservative in the world. We are to be a flavor in the world. We are to be a light of the glory of God, the beauty of Christ in the world in which we live. And so that as people see our lives, as they see the way that we live, as they see the way we interact with others, they will not look at us, but they will look to God and they will glorify God. And so we are planted in this world so that people can see through us to the glory of our Father, God. Paul calls us to be children of God in the midst of a crooked and a perverse generation amongst who you are to shine as lights in the world. And so one of the reasons God leaves us here in the world is to be a light and is to be a preservative of truth. Another reason is that we are purified by our time in this world. We looked at this just a little, a few weeks ago, did we not? But when we were talking about that God can even use Satan to accomplish his good purposes of sanctification in the lives of his people. Think Peter, think Paul, think Job. Jesus reminded us that in this world we would have tribulation. You know, if you're a follower of Jesus, your life is not all roses. In fact, sometimes our lives tend to be even more difficult, it seems, than those that don't follow Christ. In this world, you will have tribulation. Yet we know that everyone who is a child of God overcomes the world. And after we have suffered for a little while, Peter tells us, we will be made perfect. And so God uses this field, this world that we're in, to bring about perfection in us through our sufferings and through our trials and through our tribulations. And then Jesus describes who, who we are with while we're in this world. The weeds. He says, the weeds are the sons of the evil one. This is, I, you know, I, I didn't really want to talk about this today. There's lots of reasons I don't want to, but this is the Bible. And this is the world that God describes. And so just as there are sons of the kingdom, there are sons of the evil one. We share this world with the sons of the evil one. Sons and daughters of the evil one. There are children of the kingdom of God who are directed by God, who are under the rule of God, and there are children of the wicked one who are directed by the devil and under the rule of the devil. You can go and read 1 John chapter 3, verses 1 to 11, and you can find there how John distinguishes between those who are the children of God and those who are the, uh, the children of the devil. See, this is the simplicity of the scriptures. There are only... Two categories of people that all of humanity falls into. You're either a child of God or you're a child of the evil one. You're either under the rule of Christ or you are following the course of this world, the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. Second Corinthians chapter 4, verse 4 says, The God of this world has blinded the eyes of the unbelieving so they cannot see Christ. Remember what Jesus said to the Pharisees as they were 
having a conversation. He says, you are of your father, the devil. And your will is to do the father's will. In this world, there are only two kinds of people. And there's a battle that's being waged. We've talked about that through the book of Revelation. And there is enmity. We, we talked about that a number of years ago, two years ago at Christmas time from Genesis chapter 3, verses 15, where there it talks about either the offspring of the woman or the offspring of Satan. There are only two families, so to speak, in the world. There is not a third category or a fourth category, a fifth category. You're either in this family or you're in this family. There is no third options. This is the biblical description of the world in which we live. And we know that in the beginning, God seeded the world with Adam and Eve, and Satan came in and overseeded and, and, and wreaked destruction in there. And all through the world there, since the beginning now, there has been battle between the good seed and the bad seed. And it will be this way until the end of this age, until the harvest comes in the day of judgment. Until that day, we breathe the same air. We walk on the same ground, we shop in the same stores, we drive in the same highways, we go to the same schools, we work in the same places of business. There is an intermingling, there is an intermixing between these two families. Where does evil come from? Have you ever asked that question? Why is there evil in the world? Well, this parable tells us the devil the ancient serpent, the dragon. I mean, well, why doesn't God just deal with evil right now? We looked at that a couple of weeks ago. We can certainly say, well, because the time is not right. God's purposes haven't yet fully ripened, and they won't ripen until the end of this age. We know that God's ways are higher than our ways. God's thoughts are higher than our thoughts. And while the scripture does describe the work of Satan, and it does give us some of the glimpses of the whys behind it. There's a lot we don't understand, and so we have to trust God in his sovereignty to know that he has a plan. Remember, Revelation chapter 4, there is a scroll. Or Revelation chapter 5. So we stand firm, we resist, we don't live in fear, we hold firm to our faith and our testimony, and we're not afraid unto death. The sixth truth that Jesus says there is a harvest and the harvest is at the end of the age harvest is a frequent metaphor in scripture for the final judgment uh, this is important that we stick this in our hearts that judgment comes at the end of the age see the di disciples needed to hear this and you and I need to hear this as well I don't know if I can speak for your heart, but I can speak for my heart. Do you remember the occasion in the Bible where Jesus was making his way to Jerusalem? And he sent his disciples ahead to one of the cities in Samaria, and he just wanted them to make preparations so they could stay for the night, and nobody would allow them to stay. And so they came back and they reported this to Jesus. Do you remember what the disciples said when they had finished reporting this to Jesus? Lord, do you want us to call down fire from heaven and consume them? 
Do you ever feel like that? You know, we, we live amidst so much evil. We feel it. Sometimes we can even taste it. We feel its pressure. We see, we see its harm. We see the suffering that it brings. We, we see God's people in various places around the world suffer incredible things. And if we're honest, is not our hearts cry, God, won't you do something? In fact, I was fascinated by going through the book of Psalms and just typed in the word enemy or enemies, and I found it used well over 50 times, and often it was in the context of David praying that God would destroy his enemies. It's the same that we get in Revelation chapter 6, verse 10, as we see all the souls that are under the altar, and they're they're suffering and they, they, they have suffered. They've died because they've suffered for the Lord. And they say, how long, O Lord, until you avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? You see, loved one, it's not for us to judge the world. That's not our place. That's for God to do, and God will do it at the end of this age. I don't know the purposes of God entirely. We've described a few of them. But God has a purpose for leaving this field, this world mixed until the very end of the age when he will come with his angels and he will judge the world. Until that time, God does not call you and I to judge the world. I don't find any text in the Bible that calls us to do that anywhere. How many terrible things have been meted out in the world by overzealous Christians who thought that it was their job to judge the world? It's not our calling to pull up weeds. Christ is our example. He was patient. He was merciful. He was gracious. What did he do? To, what did he tell us? He says, pray for your enemies. Do good to those who persecute you. Our calling is to take the gospel to the ends of the world. Our gospel is to be, our calling is to be salt and light. Think for a moment, what if, what if somebody had interpreted their role as judging you before you ever had a chance to hear about Christ? Pulled you up. See, all of us at one point were weeds. All of us at one point had been, had darkness in us. But God in his mercy changed the DNA and made us his children and planted us throughout the world. We are to have hearts of compassion, not of condemnation. And then he says, the harvesters, they're the angels. The Bible speaks of the role of the angels this way again and again. That is the angels that God will send out to be instruments of reaping and setting aside some for eternal destruction and others for eternal life. You see, this is a picture of our world. This helps us understand and, and find our place and fit revelation and the wiles of Satan into this, this single illustration. And finally, the application, and it'll only be a couple minutes here. Verses 40 to 43. Just as the weeds are gathered and burned with fire, so it will be at the end of the age. 
The Son of Man will send out his angels, and they will gather out of his kingdom all causes of sin and all lawbreakers, and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. He who has ears, let him hear. I just want to read so that you understand there's a, the second, another parable that illustrates the same thing. Verse 47, again, the kingdom of heaven is like a net that was thrown into the sea and gathered fish of every kind. When it was full, men drew it ashore and sat down and sorted out the good into containers and threw away the bad. So it will be at the end of the age. The angels will come out and separate the evil from the righteous and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. God sends out his angels to harvest the earth, to gather everything from it that causes sin. It's a comprehensive statement, everything that causes sin. We talk sometimes how God has saved us from the penalty of sin and how God is now presently saving us from the power of sin. And there's a day coming when God is going to save us from the very presence of sin. And so he pulls out of the kingdom everything that causes sin or causes stumbling. That phrase is used many times in the New Testament. Some of the causes of stumbling come through people. Sometimes the causes of stumbling come through the world and the things of the world, the way that the world sucks us away from worshiping God. Sometimes the causes of stumbling are in us. Remember what Jesus said? If your right eye causes you to stumble, that's the same phrase used here. If your right eye causes you to stumble, pluck it out. If your right hand causes you to stumble, cut it off. In other words, what Jesus is saying, that every thing in this world that causes us to sin is one day going to be removed. And we will live forever and ever in the new heaven and in the new earth, free from anything that causes stumbling. It's an encouraging picture of the world to come, a world in which the very presence of sin will be done away with, but don't miss the implication of this for the present. Right now, until that day comes, we live in the midst of the world in which there are many things that cause us to stumble. That's one of the reasons we've been looking at the wiles of Satan. Don't be ignorant so that you not be caught in his snares, that you not be entrapped by him. And he will gather those guilty of lawlessness. Remember those in Matthew who said, Lord, didn't we do this in your name? Didn't we do that in your name? And he said, depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. And so not only will God gather out the causes of stumbling, but he will also gather out those who are sinners from the world. I have no easy way to say these last few things. But I want to go to a doctor who will tell me the truth. And so sometimes we need to hear the truth of the Word of God. He says, they will be thrown into the blazing furnace where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. 
Weeping which points to ongoing suffering, gnashing of teeth which describes eternal despair. And both of these describe the horror of eternal suffering. I continue to hear people joke about hell. I had a conversation with somebody not too long ago. And they started joking about hell. Well, it's a great place because I'll be with my friends and I'm going to take control of it and I'm going to organize it. And I didn't know what to say to him other than, you really think that's what you're going to do if that's where you go? This is not the picture of the Bible, certainly not this parable and not the rest of the Bible. For those who die of, as children of the evil one, face an age to come separated from God, eternal, inevitable, inescapable judgment and torment. But the righteous, they will shine like the sun in their Father's kingdom. There's an option. And what a beautiful option is that the righteous will shine. I think that what that is doing is it's describing the wonder of perfection in us. Right now, our righteousness, sure we have the righteousness of Christ, but we are not fully yet transformed in the image of Christ, and there's a blurriness about us. There's a darkness about us. You know, there's a, there's a sort of a, a non-perfection about us, but there is coming a day when Christ comes back and he will transform these bodies into the likeness of his body, and then we will shine like Christ. And that will be our eternal existence in the age to come. And so Jesus ends by simply saying, He who has ears, let him hear. Do you know what that's saying? It's simply saying, listen. Listen. Don't let it go in one ear and out the other ear. Don't kind of go from here today and say, Well, that was a bunch of hooey, and go on with your life. Don't think, oh, that's not unimportant. Oh, that's just a weird worldview. No, think about it at least. Think about it. Think about how it compares with your worldview. Think if it makes sense and listen. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. For those who are wheat, you live in a difficult, difficult world, determined to influence it for good. Don't be transformed by it. Grow, flourish where God has planted you. Shine like the light God wants you to shine in the part of his field that he has planted you. And for those who are darnel or weeds, if you're here today and you've not yet submitted your life to Christ, your father is the devil. And your end is one of judgment and eternal torment. But it needn't be. Because the Bible tells us that God is able to transfer us out of the kingdom of darkness into his marvelous light. He is able to remove us from the domain of Satan into the domain of his son. That Christ is able to so work in us that we become new creatures in Christ Jesus. New creations. He changes our DNA right down to the very structure of who we are. He takes out the evil and he replaces it with his good. And he makes us a children, a child of God. He can transform you. He can enable you to cross enemy lines. 
be adopted into his family if you'd only look to Jesus Christ and trust him. Father, I thank you for our time in your word today. Father, through Christ, would you deliver some this morning? Would you open their eyes to see the state in which they are and would you help them to see the state in which they could be? Would you help them put their trust in Christ? Father, would you deliver us from this present evil age? Father, through Christ, would you change our hearts? Father, through Christ, would you let us live? Spirit of God, speak to our hearts, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.